You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love, and all things literary. Our guest today is Min Jin Lee, the author most recently of Pachinko. Her debut novel was Free Food for Millionaires. I'm so glad to have Min Jin here to talk about her incredible book, Pachinko. Um, I'd never understood the conflict between um, the Koreans and the Japanese and her book kind of shows us a period of history that um, we need to know more about. We're good to go. (laughs) I'm so excited to have um, Min Jin Lee here this morning to talk about her latest novel, Pachinko. So the first question, because it's such an unusual title, I think, you know, when I saw it and I... Firstly, you have many advocates out in the book world oh, that you. months, you know, last year, they're like, just read that book. And, I, and it's such a beautiful looking book, um, which everyone will see on kind of online and on Instagram and everything. But um, if you could explain what what is the meaning of the title first and then we'll kind of go back in time. So Pachinko is a vertical pinball game. It's found primarily only in Japan. It is now, as of this week, a $203 billion business in Japan, which is twice the export revenues of the Japanese car industry. You know, Nissan, Honda, Toyota. So the important thing about Pachinko is that it's a business dominated by the Korean-Japanese community who basically Mm. arrived in 1910, the majority of them. And they stayed for about four to five generations. There's 600,000 of them today. And the pachinko business is seen as a very dirty business. It's a gambling business. It's seen by people who are, it's seen by the majority as a business filled with people who are crooked and immoral. And consequently, that moral maligning gets imputed to the Korean people of Japan. I chose this title because it's a game, it's a gambling game, so consequently it's rigged in favor of the Mm -hmm. house. However, it was also an employment haven for the Korean Japanese people because they were not allowed to have regular jobs because they would not be hired for regular middle class jobs like nursing, teaching, being a postal worker or a police officer, those kinds of things. So they went into um, independent 
business owner havens like Pachinko or the barbecue business, like the Korean barbecue mm-hmm. business. Anyway, what I found really troubling was that the Korean Japanese are seen in this negative way because of the business they're in. Every person I interviewed in Korea, in Japan who are Korean Japanese had some contact with the pachinko business. And even today, the Korean Japanese are really seen as immoral and suspect. Well, this is what I was... Um, it was like a whole history was opening up to me. Um, so why did you start the novel in 1910? And then we can start from there. Um, and then, yeah, yeah. Why don't we just go there? Um, when I initially wrote a draft of this novel and finished it in 2002, it started in 1970. Mm-hmm. And that novel was no good, so I put it aside. And I started it all over again after I interviewed the Korean Japanese people. I realized that the book had to start in 1910 because 1910 is a very important moment in Korean history when Japan colonized um, Korea. So the Japanese colonized Korea because Japan, a country which is a magnificent country even today, has almost no natural resources. Mm. So Korea became a kind of breadbasket. And I say Korea because back then there was only one Korea, not two. And so this, when I was reading the book, I'm imagining that there was, um, the Japanese would come over to Korea and then were the Koreans allowed to similarly kind of go to Japan? No. No, no. It was, um, the Japanese came to Korea to take over property Mm -hmm. and then to collect what they wanted to collect. And one of the first things that they did is they did land surveys on landowners and they charged very onerous taxes, which forced farmers and sharecroppers to essentially lose their property. They had nothing to do. They could not find a living. And then some of them became economic migrants to Japan. So about 2 million people at the height of the migration went to Japan. And were many but of them... it wasn't equal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were they kind of lured there? I mean, throughout the book, there's this kind of um, ominous threat of, especially if you're a woman. Well, firstly, over and over, there's this, there almost these phrases that a woman will suffer. Being a woman is suffering. And that's kind of drummed into us over and over, mm-hmm. um, which I'd love you to talk about further. Um, but then... Um, you know, also it was like, don't be lured by the promise of jobs to China or Japan because you'll, you could go and be, I mean, prostituted for the army or right. all these other things. That's, precise, that's correct. And I am addressing the issue of comfort women because the comfort women issue was so dominant, actually, during that period. And I don't want to get in trouble for this, but I, I guess I will have to. The truth is that the luring of women for the use of sex slavery during the war had multiple layers of people. And some of them were Korean and Mm -hmm. some of them were Japanese. Ultimately, it was for the benefit of the empire of Japan. However, some of the agents were Korean who would encourage you to apply for a job that did not exist elsewhere. That said, the population of the sex slaves of comfort women actually came from many countries. Mm. It wasn't just Korea. And that's another thing that, that's interesting to study, that you, know, you had Dutch women who became comfort women too. I see. So then... For Japan. For Japan. So you spent a few years living in Japan. Mm-hmm. Four years. And when, I mean, 
when did this idea come to you? I know, I mean, you've written another novel and we'll go into kind of your kind of epic struggle, almost like the kind of epic nature of the book, you know, of, of becoming such a kind of exquisite writer. Oh, thank you. But how did that time inform this book? Because it just feels, I mean like you had to get these first-person narratives, and I'm wondering if you'd ever thought of getting them before you travelled there. Well, I got the idea for the book in 1998 when I was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So I, went, I attended a lecture where an American missionary worked in Japan, and I was a history major. I didn't know anything about the Korean-Japanese history. But when I went to the lecture, he was talking about the tragic and difficult history of the Koreans in Japan, and I thought that was interesting. However, he told us this one story of a little boy who was 13 years old. He climbed up to the top of an apartment building, and he jumped off to his death. His parents were devastated, and they looked through his things, and they found his middle school yearbook. And in the middle school yearbook, his classmates had written, Go back to where you belong. I hate you. You smell like kimchi and garlic. A terrible insult for somebody Mm. in Japan just because in Japan they're so refined about sensibility and aesthetics and taste and smell. And then they finally wrote the words, die, die, die. And that story really stayed with me for a very long time. I guess it's still with me. And I felt very compelled to explore more about this history because I think that as a Korean American, I felt so welcomed in New York. Mm -hmm. All my life, I felt very encouraged to be an American. And I am a naturalized citizen now. And I was so surprised by the idea that a social norm and a culture could despise a child that could encourage other children to hate a child just based on his bloodline because this little boy was born in Japan. His parents were also born in Japan. Another theme in the book is this idea of bad blood. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe we're just, I mean, in Australia, I guess we're criminals, but there's never this idea of bad blood um, is that a specifically Japanese thing that you you know your lineage is tainted by the blood you have? Um, you know, if your mother was a prostitute, you've got bad blood. I mean, I guess in all of history, there is we're only now becoming more enlightened, being like you're an individual with you know rights of your own. But was that specific to to these stories? This kind of Everyone's inheriting these, um, you know, or trying to wrestle with their parents' past or blood. I find this whole idea of blood so very troubling, but I think you're right. I, I guess it's because you're from Australia, you have a longer sense of history in some ways. In America, it's so shocking for us to talk about blood because it's such an unfair thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you be blamed for... or be considered the same as your ancestors. Because so much about America is reinvention. Yeah. And very few countries actually around the world actually grant citizenship just based on birth. So around the world, most people care about blood. And I found the conversation about blood very upsetting when I lived in Japan because very often I think of myself as an American. Sometimes I forget about the way I look, especially because in Japan I look just like everybody else. It's very difficult to tell the difference mm-hmm. between 
the Japanese and the Koreans. And I almost defy anyone who says they can tell, always tell the difference, because I certainly couldn't. And most people I know really can't, because after four or five generations, habits, mannerisms, dress, speaking style, very mm -hmm. clear to assimilate. And also there's a very strong compulsion if you're Korean to assimilate very well, because if you're found out, you could not get a job, you could not get a date, you cannot live in certain housing. So you have to be very careful sometimes about your ethnic heritage. But going back to this whole idea of blood, it's also a very dangerous concept, especially post-World War II, because the Jews were persecuted in this way. And if you look at 19th century literature, Jewish people are often talked about in terms of blood, of their blood is not good. And I found that to be the closest parallel that I could see because in 19th century liter literature, Jews are not considered to be white. They're always the other in the mm -hmm. um, panorama of 19th century literature. In Japan, the other is often the Korean. Well, one of your characters in the book, Noah, he really grapples with um, this idea because he wants to be Japanese and he does everything he can to assimilate and then to completely... Um, we don't want to give too much away. But he does a lot, you know, mannerisms, voice. And there's a really powerful scene, um, which I don't think is giving too much away, when he has, when he hears a woman um, critiquing George Eliot. And I'm wondering how um, I've heard you on other shows talk about this influence of 19th century literature. How did that influence this book and how when I, mean, I thought it was so the parallel of talking about the Jewish um, kind of persecution in that book and then um, kind of bringing it to this story made it easy for me as an Aussie you know American to kind of understand the context more because I had never really known too much about the Japanese Korean um, conflict. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how did you I mean you're Korean American when did you first start to I mean I guess you, you said it was at this lecture when you were 19 but was it something your parents talked about what's their lineage did they ever live in Japan um, my father two things one is that I think nobody knows about the Korean Japanese history because it's not taught widely it's a very tiny segment of the population and for me and for you I think it's valuable to us as an allegory as well as an actual history. Mm -hmm. So the Daniel Deronda story by George Eliot is another allegory that's very powerful about refugees. Do we want them? Do we not want them? And should they have statehood or should they not have statehood? It's a very controversial issue. And I thought that George Eliot's take on it at that point in history was such an incredibly forward way of thinking. And then I also read his um, criticism by Jewish scholars who said, it is forward-thinking, and it is really great. However, it also means they wanted to get the Jews out of England. And it's I thought, like, we like, we think you're interesting, but we don't want you around. Right. Us. And they were going to use Zionism as a kind of pretext to get you out. And I thought, I never thought of that before, but it is a direct parallel to when the Japanese government encouraged the Koreans in Japan to go back to North Korea, when many of them were not from there. And North Korea actually sent out glossy brochures saying, oh, you should come live here. You're going to get a fancy apartment. You'll, every day you'll have, eat white rice. It was that kind of promise and allure. And I think raising children in Japan 
when they knew that they would be disliked and that they couldn't get regular middle class jobs, a lot of families did feel compelled to go. But going back to um, your issue of what can we take from this? What can we take from this idea of um, Koreans in Japan and immigration as well as this 19th century literature? I felt that 19th century literature was very open to having a larger history as well as a community, as well as a personal family story. Mm. I grew up reading 19th century literature. It's primarily how I learned how to speak and re read and write in English, which is weird, but true. And, but I really wanted to write modern sentences. So I think the reason why it took me such a long time to write these books, both of them, because they're both written in this sort of 19th century style, mm is I wanted to have modern 21st century sentences or late 20th century sentences, kind of like the stylists like John Updike or Joan Didion. I really wanted to write like them. However, I wanted to have this huge panorama of the whole wide world that I was interested in and to put those communities into these books. Which I think you do so successfully. Oh, thank you so much. To go from 1910 to modern day and to be so invested in these families and these people is is rare now, oh, I mean, you. completely. One theme that's fascinating is this idea of Christianity coming, um, you know, to both uh, Korea and Japan. When, in your research, where, when did that start? And it, you know, becomes very problematic, especially in Japan, where they didn't, where they don't recognize Christianity, or they didn't, you know, back then. Why was it important to have that kind of cast over the whole novel? Oh, it's funny because Christianity really took hold in Korea in a way that it didn't take hold in other Asian countries. And in Japan, Christianity was important. However, it was very repressed. And missionaries were forced out in different parts of Japanese history. The important aspect of Christianity for the Koreans cannot be undervalued because whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, the impact of the missionaries on 20th century Korean, Korean history is just phenomenal. Like it's so humongous. And namely, one of the things that I'm interested in most is the education of women. Mm -hmm. The leading aristocrats of Korea and the E dynasty did not believe that women should be educated. The American missionaries and the Western missionaries fought very strongly for girls to be educated of all classes. So if you meet somebody who's Korean and they say their grandmother was educated, that was a direct impact huh. from how Western missionaries did their job. So you can talk about Christian colonialism and how that's negative or maybe you don't want to be um, proselytized. However, they made very strong impacts on orphanages, education of girls, and also the breaking down of the social classes, which are so rigid in Korea, even now. Oh, gosh. So something you said earlier was that you learned to read um, right. and write from... And speak. And speak from novels. I did hear that you... It took a long time for you to speak. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you first spoke? At, was it spoke at all or was it just speak English? Um, I spoke English, but then I was incredibly shy, so I took all these public speaking classes. So right now, I'm a high-functioning introvert. <laughs> so I took 
I joined the debate team when I was 15 because I thought that in America, if you don't talk, people think you're stupid. And I didn't want people to think I was stupid. That must have been painful. It was really hard because you don't sound correct. And especially because I, so I can sound very formal because I did really learn from books. <laughs> <laughs> and also my mannerism. So for example, if you wanted to talk about I don't know, the legacy of entail in 19th century literature, I feel very comfortable with that, which is... That's your happy place. Yes, my happy place. It's totally useless. <laughs> but I know all these things about women's rights in the 19th century because a lot of the you know, male writers actually focused on those things. That said, um, I joined the debate team and I did it for a whole year. And that was very helpful because you have to get up there and you have to argue. And arguing is not something that a nice Korean girl is taught to do. Mm -hmm. So I had to argue... And I had to talk, and I had to be graded because they judge you on it. And my teammate was counting on me to talk, too. Very helpful. And then I also took two public speaking classes, and one of which at summer schools, and one of which where you had to tell jokes and things like that. So now I can do it. I can actually speak pretty much in front of anybody. And I always try to trick myself that I'm actually trying to partner with people who've asked me to speak. So it's not just like me bragging yes, about myself yes, yes. because it sounds so insufferable sometimes when you have to get up there and think you're so wonderful. <laughs> That's really hard. And then I also try to think about something that I, very important thing that I did learn and I'd love to share with anybody who yes. listens to this about public speaking. I can save you a lot of time. Most people are really rooting for you. That's something that I learned in a very hard way. But once I realized that most people want you to succeed, most people are rooting for you, then all of a sudden I felt okay, that it's okay to talk about things. And also if you talk about things that have value, mm. then you're not wasting anybody's time. I like that. My mom is always sending me jokes because she's the same. She goes, if you can master a few jokes, you'll be great at a dinner party. And she's right. <laughs> she's but right. somehow I can never quite, mom, I'm going to, I should practice one each week on here and see how it goes. But, but a really well-told joke. They are great. It's a real story. It's a beginning and a middle and an end. They don't work unless it's actually a very clever story, it, you know, in three sentences or something. So did this, the debating and speaking well, was that, once you got your kind of legs under you, was that a reason that you went into law? Oh, no, I went into law because I'm just an insecure immigrant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I had real courage, I don't think... I don't think I would have done that. That said, I'm really glad I have done it. It's almost like a really great finishing school. Mm -hmm. Really expensive, but really great finishing school for a woman, especially because I'm not afraid of men anymore. And I'm not afraid of paper. I'm not afraid of documents. Like mm -hmm. You can show me a document, and I don't feel overwhelmed. Like We could talk about taxes, and I don't feel afraid. And I think in that sense, almost everybody should have some law in their college or their high school education. It, you shouldn't have to pay whatever it was, $200,000 to go to law school, which is essentially what I did, or my father did. So what, I mean, I will reference this essay you wrote that was incredibly powerful oh, um, for LitHub, and it was about your trajectory mm -hmm. to, you know, getting that first novel published. So how long was it then? It was... 11 years. 11 years. It was 11 years from 1995 when I quit being a lawyer until 2006 when I sold the book, and then it was published in 2007. So it was 11 years to publication of my first novel, and it was 12 years to actual publication. 
Wow. It's completely insane. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it. <laughs> no, but it, and throughout that period, you write really honestly about the struggle and this kind of shame mm -hmm. that you felt because, you know, you'd given up a lucrative career and you had a child and you have a supportive husband and yet where is this manuscript that's meant to change your lives or even be good it, or even be good <laughs> right so was it who first read that um and gave you that um positive feedback was it an agent or was it someone who was able to go keep going no I, I really don't know why I continued in some ways. I, I mean, I do know why. I do know why, because I thought these stories were important to me. But I didn't think in any way that I could have crowdsourced or figured out or market tested its viability, because what I write doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you could say that I write immigrant fiction, but I don't really write in a very traditional immigrant fiction way. And I love immigrant fiction. but. What I was writing was so weird and I thought in many ways unwanted. So Pachinko is the only book written originally in English about the Korean Japanese community as a novel in the world. I know that because I look for other books and I've read almost every academic text written about the Korean Japanese written in English. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself that I was doing something foolish. Nobody wanted it. It's a 600,000 person community today. Who cares? There's a lot of 600,000-person communities around the world. And I just figured that because I felt almost haunted by this story, that I had to continue it. But that trajectory of 12 years to publication of my first novel, it was really, it really broke me in a lot of ways. And I think that if I wasn't sick, because I had this mm. horrible liver disease, which I don't have anymore, I don't think I would have felt this kind of do-or-die aspect to it. And I do think that, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but if I wasn't sick and didn't have that illness for such a long time, I don't know if I would have cared so much about the significance of what I was doing with my time because I really wanted to leave something behind. Mm. Would it change the world? I don't know. I think what, what I wanted was a sense of I'm proud of what I've done. Maybe it'll have a few readers, and then I can go on to my next thing. Because losing money and status for such a long time, and in New York, it's very easy for people to make you feel like you're nothing without even meaning to. And I think I was very sensitive, and I felt, I felt really humiliated a lot. And I felt like I had made this choice. It wasn't anybody's fault but mine. Mm -hmm. And that was really tough. And when did the liver... Wait, your did you have a transplant? No, I couldn't get one. Um, so I had liver cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. So initially I, had, I was a chronic hepatitis B carrier. And one of the things that happens if you're a chronic hepatitis B carrier is that you can get sick yourself. And then yeah. what ended up happening was I had very severe inflammation, so I couldn't open a doorknob or walk up the stairs. And then it turned out that I had liver cirrhosis. So I took interferon B for several months, and I lost my hair and very traumatic. However, I'm perfectly cured now. I've had a recent checkup again, and I'm, Excellent. well, thanks to Dr. McGunn. <laughs> but that is fascinating, though, this, the fact that you were ill and that it, I mean, I'm 
wonder, you know, that it focused you. Because oh, it, it is an important story. I have mm-hmm. n- I don't know about this. The one time, so I was lucky enough, I got to interview Richard Flanagan, who sure. wrote The Narrow Road to mm-hmm. the Deep North. And we never published it because I actually cried so much in the interview. It was a very strange... I think he reminded me very much of my dad. It was... You know when you have a kind of disproportionate... Transference, sure. Yeah, it was definitely something was happening in there. He was so kind. We probably could put it up there. but You should. But there was... um, Because, you know, it's based on his father's real experiences in a prisoner of war camp in Japan. And... Oh, not in Japan, but in, you know, the the railroad. But one of the fiercest guards had been Korean. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until he, I think, you know, researched this exact... I mean, basically everything your book Mm -hmm. has brought to light that he understood how much duress this Korean officer was within the hierarchy of the Japanese army Mm -hmm. and that... The cruelty he had suffered had, um, you know, he had been a victim also. Right. It's horrible. And so, yeah, I had it, all of that is to say is that it is illuminating and it is important. And I'm sure the impulse to get this story finished. But that connection that you just made is really significant. And it goes back to your question about Noah. Because Noah is a character, he is my main character's son, the first child, and he wants so desperately to be a normal Japanese person. And his idea is that he has to out-Japanese the Japanese. So in that sense, the parallel for Flanagan's novel, the evil Korean guard, who is cruel, has a lot to do with wanting to be just like the oppressor, but even better than the oppressor, Mm -hmm. to be that cruel to a foreigner saying, see, I belong in your tribe because I can hate this new other and it becomes a horrible sense of displacement, of hatred. I saw it so much in the history that I read because, for example, you had um, all these Koreans who were very cruel to the people of Jeju Island who are also ethnically Korean. And in that history of Jeju Island, which is a tiny islet off the coast of Korea, Mm -hmm. another incredibly tragic history where the Koreans were very, very cruel to other Koreans. And they killed and burned people alive. And this was right after the colonial era. And certain historians and sociologists argue it was because they had learned these terrible things from having been colonized. I think we have to argue that people make their own choices. However, I don't think you can essentially divorce your history and the psychological impact the history has on you two of people either. So I think they're both informing evil. And now, I mean, I'm wondering what the reception is in Japan of this book. It hasn't been translated. It hasn't? No, and it hasn't. It must be. I've actually received, this book has sold in countries like Poland, in Turkey. It's being well received in South Africa and Ireland, and it has not received an offer from Japan. (gasps) That's telling perhaps or not but I also heard I keep saying that here because I've you know listened to you on other interviews and things but that you recently had an experience of a woman who'd just been to Japan you know and people come back and they say oh the 
the culture and the history is so beautiful. Beautiful, and it, it it is. It is in part, yes. But that there is this underbelly, that this unacknowledged history still. And was that difficult to accept when you were living there? Did you feel and understand that? It was really hard because I felt so fortunate to be this American expatriate living in Japan in a very nice neighborhood in an apartment paid for by my husband's company. So it, it sounds perfect, mm -hmm. right? So I can just sort of enjoy the cherry blossoms in the, in the spring. But I was interviewing the Korean Japanese the entire four years while I was there and visiting the, the sites where they lived and how they lived and these shanty towns where they lived. And it was really hard because you couldn't forget what was going on. So I think in many ways, my stay in Japan was very qualified with this kind of border of grief hmm. of all these people who really couldn't talk about what had happened to them. And that was very sad to me. That said, I mean, you really can't beat the food in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> you can't. I mean, it's so amazing. And the hospitality, if you're a foreigner and if you're visiting, I think... Japan really wants to open up in ter terms of tourism. And I think that people should go to Japan. And I don't think it's a good idea to take reciprocity or revenge on the Japanese today. In this book, I took great pains to be fair to both the Koreans and the Japanese. Mm -hmm. I'm actually hard on both groups. The Korean Japanese, when they go to Korea, for example, today, they're not treated well today. So I think it's never a good idea to paint things in a binary of being good versus evil, mm -hmm. I think it's much more important to just be honest. So yes, you can enjoy Japan today, but yes, we have to be honest about its participation in the war. And I don't mean like we're looking for apologies. It's more like just truth telling. I think that's very important. It, it kind of treats people with respect if you tell the truth. How have your Korean readers responded to the book? Oh, that's really interesting. The Korean readers from Korea who've read the book in English have said to me very often, especially if they're older, how did you know all these things and why do you care? Like they actually wanted to know why I care and I tried to explain to them how much I care about it because I care about my past. Mm -hmm. That was interesting to me. And I did learn about all these different facts from having read so many war diaries because after a while it's really difficult to find out things like the price of cloth were safety pins available during the war? Could people get shoe polish? Because these are the concerns that regular people have during the war. Or were you going to alienate a community leader who was in charge of the ration cards? Because if you alienated the community leader, you would get no food for your family. So you weren't really considering the San Francisco Peace Treaty mm -hmm. or the Normalization Treaty. You weren't thinking about um, Roosevelt or Hitler. You were really thinking about how am, I, how am I going to feed my family today? And that was very helpful for me to learn all this. So a lot of Koreans actually don't know those things today. And I think they're really happy that this book is out. The Koreans that I've met were overjoyed that this book is out. That said, the Korean publishing industry has not been necessarily supportive of this book. Because again, the history in it, I, it's, it's true. Mm -hmm. The things that are in here, it's it is true that if you are Korean Japanese and you go back to Korea today, they aren't kind to you. It's true. And I think it can be fairly represented in a dramatic way. I think it should be because I think it gives dignity to the lives of the Korean Japanese who feel rejected by their motherland as well as their place of birth and domicile. 
Well, one character who's in the present day, Phoebe, she's a Korean-American. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting that when she, you know, she's living in Tokyo with her boyfriend and everyone's asking her whether she's north, you know, from the North or South Korea. And it just frustrates her because she's, you know, she says, I was born in Seattle. What's this question? But... I mean, do you have family that were in North Korea or is that is that division of the country that happened, you know, in the 50s? Oh, Does, actually, my was father it? was born in the North. Oh, really? My father's a war refugee. Okay. And he lost his entire family when he was 16. So my father's from the North and my mother's from the South. I was born in Seoul, mm-hmm. which is a very rare thing. Very few people are actually born from the capital. They usually come there. It's kind of like mm-hmm. people aren't really from New York. They're from somewhere yeah. else. Um, my father and his older brother came down from the north to the south to escape becoming communist soldiers because they were just rounding up children and boys. And his mother sent him with a little bit of um, money. But the paper money wasn't worth anything mm-hmm. because you were moving around. He had some jewelry from her. And they thought that they were going to be gone for just a few days. And then he never saw her again. He never saw his brothers and sisters again. Oh, my goodness. So I do feel like I have both parts of the region of one Korea, and now, of course, in my reality, there's two Koreas. How, I mean, the news we had just last week... Of the assassination? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Was, is so shocking. Does your, you know, Korean-American community, how do people kind of, um, I'm not saying accept the news, because... No one wants to accept that. But how does it, does news from home ripple through the community? Or is it, I don't really know what my question is. I'm saying, how much does news of home affect the lives of your community? You know, it's really funny that you ask that question because the Korean American community is so mixed. It's mixed in terms of class. It's mixed in terms of education, and it's mixed in terms of political identification. So one of the things that I have noticed is that there's a huge chunk of the Korean-American population, and they don't want to be bothered. Mm -hmm. They really want to assimilate. They want to carry on and take care of their own family's concerns. They're not that different from other people. However, there's a certain segment of the population. They're obsessed with the news of home, and they really see that as home, and this is a place that they're kind of in, it's a nice refuge, but they don't necessarily think of themselves as American. They live apart. They only speak Korean. They mm. live in certain communities. There's also a segment of the population that feels really embarrassed by stuff like that's going on in North Korea, and they'd rather not discuss it. So, for example, if something good happens to Korea, they're like, oh, yeah, let's talk about the good thing. Like, Kim Yuna is a great skater, and she's in the Olympics. But then Kim Jong-un, he's a weirdo. And I think most people would say that he is a very difficult dictator and he has certain policies which we may not agree with. One other thing that's interesting about this book that relates to Kim Jong-un, the current ruler of North Korea, is that his mother is actually half Japanese. And she is half Japanese and half Korean. She was actually born in the very town that I write about. Oh, how interesting. In Osaka. She was, a, she was an opera singer. She was a beautiful opera singer. And her mother was Japanese, her father was Korean, and they were repatriated to North Korea, just like some of the people in my book. And it's a fact that people don't talk about very much, because, again, 
the Korean Japanese in Korea are mistreated. The Korean Japanese who go to North Korea are mistreated. They're not wanted there either. So the fact that Kim Jong-un, the leader, he's actually a quarter Japanese, is a very embarrassing thing. Well, it's, it's like all the things we just won't talk about. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's there. the world over, isn't it? <laughs> like, we just... Sweep things under the sweep rug. Sweep things under and... I mean, this, this is a truth-telling, which, which I love. What are you working on right now? Um, I have a trilogy in mind. So Free Food for Millionaires is Koreans in America. Mm-hmm. Pachinko is Koreans in Japan, because I wanted to explore the history of the Koreans. And the history of Koreans does not work without talking about very strongly about Japan and its relationship. And the third book is called American Hagwon. Hagwon, H-A-G-W-O-N, is the Korean word for cram school a cram school or a juku in Japanese. It's kind of like kumon, but on speed. It's really, really intense. So kids after school, you could be in middle school or even younger, go to these education centers after school. So you go to school, and after school you go to the education center, and you don't come home until 1 in the morning. What? And those are hagwons. And that's the reason why you have these phenomenal test scores from South Korea. These children are just studying all the time. It isn't necessarily they have inherently higher IQs. It's just a kind of social norm that expects children to perform at this level. What's interesting to me is that these hogwans are coming to America. Mm -hmm. And it only manifests the importance of education for Koreans around the world. There are also people, there are all these economies in New York City as well as in America, that support this culture of education above all things. I wanted to discuss the role of education for Koreans around the world, as well as its influence to other people, which I find to be nothing short of troubling. Well, not to give too much about away in the book, but there are, there's uh, the importance of education and the... I mean, these rigorous testing kind of ways don't suit every child. Exactly. And, you know, I just think of these young children in these pressure cookers. Even in Brooklyn, I know of kids who go to school and then they go to French school and then, you know, and they have tummy aches and you think, I think they're just stressed out of their mind. They're only eight, you know. But... I think the world is just becoming more competitive, mm-hmm. though, which is so Absolutely. scary. It's becoming more competitive. We're becoming more transnational, whether we like it or not. All of our economies are linked. In order for a person to be more competitive, he or she must be able to do that much more, be able to be that much more distinct. And everybody's feeling the pressure. And in the pretext of, well, I don't know if it's a pretext. That's not very fair. In the pursuit of competitive edges for your child, Parents are encouraging their children to do all these things, and I do believe that it's out of love. However, as you said accurately, not every child is suited for this kind of intense education, especially in a kind of analog way, in a very digital world. We're really missing a lot of children right now because we're living in a digital age, but we're still testing in an analog way. You have to learn how to read and write and memorize enormous amount of information in any country. But most children are not that interested in looking at text in a very literal way and page and take notes and then to recite them or apply them in a theoretical way. However, that's still how they're being tested. The way we test education hasn't really changed. However, the average brain of a child has changed dramatically due to the digital effects. So 
how do you kind of you're you've got all this knowledge <laughs> now how does that affect how you bring your sons up oh my son is 19 oh your son okay. i have one child right. he's 19 i guess he doesn't want to be considered a child but <laughs> he's a freshman in college and i try to be really respectful of what he can do and what he cannot do and what he does well i try to encourage that and what he needs to know how to do that he doesn't like to do i kind of say well it's kind of like grammar those are rules that we have to sort of know. You can decide not to use them after you learn them. Mm-hmm, but get it done. But I really want to be respectful because I am concerned about the mental well-being of children. I do see such huge levels of depression and anxiety for children these days in America, and I don't know why. In terms of history of time, if we look at a very long view, we live in perhaps the greatest time to live in the world in terms of life expectancy, in terms of resource availability, in terms of mobility, class differentiations, like all these things. We actually live in an amazing time, but no one seems to feel that way. Most people feel really anxious, threatened, and afraid. It's a real bizarre paradox. I wonder if we all need to go and run in the forest a bit more (laughs) or be in touch with nature. I wonder if... I'm, I'm obviously like saying what I need, what I think I need. No, but you're right. because No, I do think nature is a very good answer because what you're doing is saying, you're saying you're pulling yourself away from the noise and saying you want to sort of reflect on the bigger picture, nature, this very big thing. Because it's important to know your place in the world. It's important to know your time on this planet. And it is a planet. You are only given this one ticket. I don't really know how long our fares are or our journeys, but... I think that loss of perspective is very easy when you constantly have the fire hose of information, which is mostly negative. Most headline grabbers, most clickbait is based on anxiety. So we are all becoming more anxious than we need to be, and it's affecting our parenting. It's affecting the way we love each other, and I find that to be unfair. And I actually think we have to take a stand and say, I disagree. I disagree with the fact that the world is making us this anxious when we don't need to be. And I do think this movement towards meditation Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with the fact that people are saying, I resist. Well, just on that note, I was thinking, you know, if you walk around New York City, yes, you have the energy of the people, but we're all, we're just around buildings. Like there's no, no energy coming back to us from buildings, cement. Whereas when you're in nature, you're getting so much. Yeah. Energy just from, you know, that's why I think, you know, you see a dog on the street and you're like, oh, because we're all just so desperate to like have something warm and, you know, something with a heartbeat around us. Oh, gosh. I told you. I think I need to go. (laughs) I'm allergic to cats, but I think I'll go cuddle with one anyway. You know, I think it's funny because in social media, I'm learning more about social media just because of my publicity stuff that's going Mm -hmm. on. And I'm so interested in what people like to like. And things like dogs and cat pictures and children, all those things, because people really want something positive. Like, why is Instagram a happy space versus, let's say, other social media platforms? And it's because people are saying, I need something visual, something calming. And people who just post nature pictures, they tend to get a lot of likes. Mm -hmm. I don't do any of these things. I do some Instagram, but it's very interesting to me. But I think it, it is a kind of impulse to say, I need to pull back and really reflect on what's going on because I'm being inundated with images 
that are very negative, and therefore I need to be drawn towards things that are positive and things with a heartbeat or a life force or some vitality. Mm. Well, I think everyone will love this book. It has both. It has love. It has all this vitality, and it kind of is very life-affirming while really kind of illuminating this whole period in history. Oh, thank you. So uh, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.